Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin. Each episode, I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present, or the one that so obsessed them that it caused them to fail their exams, or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a breakup. Games often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, as I search for my perfect console. My guest today is an American writer and performer who stars in Apple's Mythic Quest TV series and who has, in recent years, provided the voice for some of video gaming's best-loved characters. She grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and rose to prominence via the web series Hey Ash, Whatcha Playing, in which she starred alongside her brother. Since then, she has become a prolific voice actor. Her roles include Mel from The Last of Us series, Aloy from The Horizon Games, and Chloe Price from Life is Strange. The nature of voice acting is such that you're sort of meant to disappear a little bit, she has said. I always feel like I've done my job if people can't immediately guess that I'm playing the character. Welcome, Ashley Birch. Hi, thanks for having me. So am I right thinking you've actually just come from a, a voice acting session? Oh, actually, so it, it got cancelled because I'm in a writer's room um, during the week, so they've had to be kind of flexible around my schedule. But we ended up getting a lot done earlier in the week. Can you say what you're, um, can you say what you're working on with that at the moment? I think that's okay. Yeah, uh, it's the Horizon DLC. Can you, can you give us an exclusive line? <laughs> 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 or, or just a bark, if that's not allowed. Gaia. 
That's what it, that's a line. <laughs> that's a line from the DLC. You heard it here first, world exclusive. Very nice, yeah. We can expect all of the um, conspiracy theories trying to figure out what's going on from that. So um, tell me about um, growing up in, in Arizona. Uh, what was that like? Hot, um, un, uh, predictably, probably. I actually was quite an indoor kid. Uh. It's funny because my dad is, is very, you know, was a very athletic in high school. He was kind of like quarterback of the high school football team sort of thing. And he ended up having two nerds as kids. We just <laughs> never really, we never really went outside. We just wanted to stay inside and play video games. And that's basically what I did. Was he trying to encourage you to play sports and stuff? Or, or did he just let you get on with it? My brother more so. There's a really... It's so funny to me now. We have these pictures of Anthony when he was dabbling in sports. One of them is like his basketball photo where he's got like, you know, he's on the one knee and he's got the basketball, (laughs) you know, that classic thing. And then he was on a football team for a little while too, like a peewee football team. It's just so bizarre to think about now because if you know my brother, he is not, um, he's not the football type. For me, I think he mostly just didn't want me to get kidnapped. Right. (laughs) Was Was there a big risk of that around your neighborhood? No, not at all. I don't know why. (laughs) I mean, also, it's like, again, it's Phoenix and it's hot outside all the time. So I feel like people just don't you don't like there's not a lot of people like walking around in our neighborhood because it was always so hot so it's too hot to do a kidnapping like who's got the energy i feel like it's too hot to do a kidnapping yeah it's a sweaty (laughs) business you know (laughs) and you your mum is um is thai is that right she is yeah how did she uh come to america and and meet your dad well that's such a wacky story basically my mother my mother was born in bangkok and she i believe she was working as a bartender at a hotel where there were a lot of tourists and expats would kind of come through there. And my dad was in the Air Force at the time. And I think he had been stationed somewhere else. And he was on some sort of break and kind of touring around and was at the hotel that my mom worked at and asked her out. She didn't speak any English. I think she knew enough to say, like, can my friend come too? Because she was like, I don't know if I should just go to dinner with this guy. I have no idea what his deal is. Right. She didn't want to get kidnapped. She also, yeah, I think that maybe that's a, a me family tradition is <laughs> trying not to get kidnapped. And so she went, they went out to dinner with, uh, it was my mom, my dad and her friend. And then I think my dad left and I found out recently just kept writing my mother letters and basically was like, you know, if you want to come to the States, I'll marry you and we can, you know, you can live here. And her friend was like, yeah, do that. I think she's agreed to marry my dad. And my dad came and like picked her up. And then I, I don't think, I mean, she spoke very, very little English. Um, and I think she learned from like watching sitcoms and stuff. It's pretty wild. What's it like um, having uh, two parents that come from different cultures like that? Did, did you sense that as kids in any way? Or by that point was everything sort of, you know, harmonious in, in a way? You know, I think about it a lot more. Or I'm I'm sort of engaging with it a lot more as I get older. I think, you know, when you're a kid, you have no frame of reference. So you sort of just assume that anything that's happening when you're a kid is just sort of the way that things are. And in reflection now, I think my mom did a lot of like sublimating her own culture so that A, so she could assimilate. Well, you're American kids and you'll, you grow up in America, so just do American things. And B, her biggest concern was making sure that Anthony and I were set up so that we could succeed in life. And for her, that was about education. So she kind of poured all of her effort into getting us good education. I mean, I remember she was so ahead of the curve in terms of she got us this like 
old computer and would have us do typing lessons when we were in like elementary school. I actually quite liked it. I thought it was sort of fun. <laughs> but now I'm, I really am. I type super, super fast. And I, I really think that's because of mom. And she just sort of I have to imagine part of it was like she knew how difficult it was going to be for her to succeed in the States. And I think she really wanted us to have every opportunity to, to do well. It's this interesting thing when you're a mixed race kid that you don't feel like you completely belong in any in either direction. But I've just been, you know, growing up in the States and going to schools where I, the only other Thai person at the school was my brother. You know, I've, I've had plenty of sort of my Western upbringing and I, I really feel a strong desire of connecting to the Thai parts of my background. Kids with immigrant um, parents can feel a lot of pressure, you know, obviously, like you were saying, to to do well and um, to study hard and all of that stuff. Were your parents a little suspicious about allowing video games into your young lives? Again, my mom was so ahead of the curve. Like, I remember she was sort of the person that introduced video games into our life. Now that I think about it, I mean, instead of seeing it as something that could be a deficit, I think she saw it as like, oh, this is a tool. We got um, an NES. Obviously, it's like Mario. And then I think one of the other first games that she got us was like a Sesame Street game that helped like teach counting and vocabulary and the alphabet and stuff like that. I remember I have this very distinct memory of all of us like sitting on my parents' bed and playing that as a as like a family. It really was, you know, if you're doing well in school, that was the most important thing to my mom. It's it's funny because I completely understand why there's such a conversation around screen time for kids of the previous generation and the generation coming up. And there were absolutely no limits for me or my brother. It was a lot of <laughs> we'd spend most of our free time looking at screens. There's an argument as well that like when so many jobs are now involve a screen, which obviously most jobs do, or a lot of jobs do anyway, uh, the best possible like thing for your kid is maximum screen time all the time. <laughs> it's like set them up. Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, I didn't, I definitely didn't guess that being sort of enamored with video games as we were was going to lead to all of the career paths that we ended up taking. This is not propaganda for letting your kids just look at screens for as long as they want, but <laughs> I, no. I, it worked out okay for me, I guess. So uh, the format of the podcast is I'm asking you to choose the five video games you want to install in your very own fictional games machine. Can you tell us about the the first game, which I think is from from 1998? What was how did you encounter it, and what was going on in your life at that time? Yes, so my the first game uh, for my console is Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> When I say we, I mean me and my brother. Um, we were first exposed to Metal Gear Solid because I believe back in the day, <laughs> I don't know why this delights me so much, Pizza Hut, as like a promotional thing, would have like demo discs. So if you ordered a certain size pizza, you would get this like PlayStation demo disc that would have, you know, like five or six game demos on it. And I mean, I would play the demos of those games over and over and over again. I think one of them was um, Spyro. These might be mixtures of several demo discs. I can't remember, but I definitely remember there being like a Spyro demo, a Bubble Bobble demo, and then there was the Metal Gear Solid demo. I remember getting the demo for Metal Gear Solid as well. And um, 
the one that we had in the UK at least was Solid Snake arrives at uh, Shadow Moses Island and it's all snowy and there's the guards around and you've got to you come up from, from the water and have to get into the basin there. Is that the same section you, you got? Yes, I think it goes from you coming out of the water to finding the DARPA chief and him dying. Right, yeah, yeah. And that's the sort of cliffhanger the demo ends on. And so I remember we played that demo a few times and we were like, you know, we were totally sucked in by the mystery because you're like, did we do that? Why did he die? Oh, that was so abrupt. Yeah. We didn't use the word abrupt, we were children. But, you know, we were <laughs> really loved, you know, so engaged by it. And so I remember we really had our eyes out, like we really wanted the full game. Uh-huh. And so when the full game came out, back then I was also a lot more... I don't know if I was more fearful than Anthony as a general rule. I just assumed that I wouldn't be good at things in terms of video games. So, like, if it was a certain type of game, like... So, uh, all that to say, I watched Anthony play through Mug Your Solid first, all the way, before I did a playthrough myself. And I think it was about 12 or 13. And, I mean, that that game has been so pivotal for so many reasons because it was so... um, you know, sort of cinema folk forward. Every time a character is introduced, there would be a little, what's the word I'm looking for? There there would be a text on screen that would say the name of the character and then the name of the actor playing the character. Right, in brackets or something, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So it would say, you know, Solid Snake would be revealed and say Solid Snake, David Hater. And I remember not knowing, obviously knowing his name was Solid Snake, but not understanding what David Hater meant. Like, who is that? Is that his, like, non-code name... Like, is that his real name? Yeah. Or? When he's at home, it's just David. Right. <laughs> right. Mr. Hater, if you're nasty. And I, I remember uh, looking up what that meant and realizing, like, oh, my God, that's the actor. Uh-huh. Like, they're crediting the actor of this game character. And it was this sort of Ratatouille moment, which maybe makes absolutely no sense. But in the moment, Ratatouille. Yeah. Yeah. Where the, you know, that that iconic moment where the um the food critic has the bite of Ratatouille and like flashes back to his childhood. I felt like I had like I saw through space and time and I was like, oh, my God, I remembered every cartoon I'd ever watched and any game I had played that had and had had any voice acting. And I sort of realized that this was a job. Uh-huh. It was the first time it had ever occurred to me that there were people behind those voices that, you know. Dexter from Dexter's Laboratory wasn't just a boy that existed. He was being voiced by someone. And so it was that that made me really want to, it made me latch onto this idea of like, oh, that's something, maybe that's something I could do. Maybe I could, maybe I could voice act in, in, in video games and cartoons. Were you doing acting at school at that time or, or not? had that not entered your life yet? I was, yes, I had been in. So I originally, um, when I was really young, wanted to be a singer I really looked up to the divas of the 90s. So like your Whitney Houston's and your Celine Dion's, et cetera. And I'd been in choir since I was in elementary school, but it wasn't until I got to middle school. So it was kind of around the same time. I wanted to audition for the school musical um, because I wanted to sing. But of course, part of the the whole deal with the musical is that there's acting involved too. And so I, I believe it was Bye Bye Birdie was the musical. Um and I can't tell if our musical director was really cruel or really smart to do this, but she had us audition in front of the entire rest of the group of kids that were also auditioning, which was terrifying. And so I remember going up in front of all of them and, and I was shaking, like my voice was shaking. I was so nervous. But then I was acting the scene and I sort of was like, something sort of clicked of like, oh, this is kind of fun. Like I sort of I sort of enjoy this and I had really only gotten into it for the singing aspect of it. Um, 
but I actually quite liked just even doing that little scene, despite how scary it was. And so I think that was maybe like a year before um, I played Metal Gear Solid or around the same time. And so those two ideas kind of coalesced pretty quickly. Like, oh, maybe this is something that I like. And then realizing that actually this more even more specialized version is something that is really exciting to me. And you, um, I mean, very in the sort of early days of your career, a lot of the acting that you were doing in your web series was it was you know, obviously very comedic and you, yeah. that's continued as a theme throughout your life were you were you like a funny kid at school or were you like the weird mm. kid that people didn't think was funny until you got a bit older <laughs> <laughs> i was really shy yeah um for most of my adolescence i think i mean i had friends and i actually have a, a really distinct memory of um bringing final fantasy you know the the little game guides or i don't know i forget what they're called the the little packets at the at the front of the CD-ROM. Like the instruction booklet? Yes, yes, of course. Jeez, the instruction booklet. But in the, all the Final Fantasy games, they would also have like profiles of the characters. So it'd be like, this is Cloud, he's 18. His is, this is a blood type, if you want to know it for some reason. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> um, and I would bring those to school and I would uh, I would get my friends to like play Final Fantasy VII with me. Uh-huh. And I would like assign people. I'd be like, oh, I'm Tifa and you'll you'll be Cloud and you'll be, you know, your heiress and um <laughs> so i never i was very like playful i suppose in that way um but i never i don't think i ever saw myself as funny um but i really was always trying to make my brother laugh that was the only th- i was like very focused on uh anytime i made him laugh i, I felt like yes like i had really accomplished something that's interesting so but i loved comedy like we we watched a lot of stand-up, and I remember um, a very formative TV show was Spaced, actually. We we, we um, illegally downloaded, don't come after me, FBI, um, we illegally downloaded Spaced, which, if, you, if the listeners don't know, is a show from the UK that was actually like how Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and all those dudes got their start. Mm. And it was very... Um, like nerdy humor as well. Like they talk about video games. Simon Pegg's character plays video games. So it was like very much in our wheelhouse. And um, so, yeah, I I really liked comedy and I really, we really, you know, um, inundated ourselves with comedy, but I never considered myself a funny person. I don't think until maybe we started doing Hey Ash. Let's uh, let's have a chat about your, your second choice now, which is from 1999. Can you tell me about it? Oh, Harvest Moon 64. That is one of my favorite games of all time. I remember when I was first being told about, I think maybe I was even making fun of Anthony for wanting to play this game. I was like... So it's a farming sim, right? It's a farming sim. Yeah, I'm like, you're a yeah. farming sim? It's a farming sim? You like plant stuff and you date girls? Like, this is stupid. And of course, I started playing it and I was like, this is incredible. <laughs> but the thing I like so much about it is, as it, from a game perspective, is that it's it's engaging. It's in an engaging gameplay loop, even though there isn't that much to do. 
it has this sort of, it has like a coziness to it and it has a lived in feeling like the town that you have your farm in feels very lived in. And, and also there's like really subtle, there's strangely subtle storytelling in it. There's a lot of stuff that you can miss if you don't just like arrive at the right place at the right time or don't talk to the right person or don't give them the right thing. It's it's not very handholdy at all. I remember the first time I played it, I absolutely got destroyed by my father when he came <laughs> and assessed my farm at the end of the three years. You mean your video game, your video game character's father? My, yes, my video game father. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Elsa's harsh. Yeah, not my real father. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> no, but your video game father. I don't know if you played if you played Harvest Moon 64 or Stardew Valley or any of the other sort of farming sims. There's usually like a you have three years to get your farm on track and then someone comes and sort of assesses you and uh, your father in Harvestman 64 could be kind of brutal if you if you were lollygagging like I was. <laughs> the thing that it, it means so much to me and it has such a like strong uh, place in my ranking of my favorite games is because at that time uh, I have an anxiety disorder and it went undiagnosed for a long time. Yeah. But I, I remember really having really acute anxiety at this age. And for some reason it was... Um, it was centered a lot around food. So I I had like a really intense fear of throwing up that I had somehow psychosomatically talked myself into believing that if I ate, I was going to throw up. So I would sort of have a few bites of food and then I really feel like just through the power of my brain alone would start to get nauseous or afraid I was nauseous. And then I would start freaking out about uh, throwing up. I remember trying a lot of different things to distract myself, like writing i think i'd try writing fan fiction i tried watching tv i tried doing all sorts of things and the only thing that would really distract me and calm me down was playing harvest moon as soon as i started feeling that feeling i would just i think the n64 was in anthony's room i would just rush into anthony's room and i would put on harvest moon 64 and i would start playing and at, you know after a few days in the game um i would sort of just get lost in the the sort of rhythm i, I think that was the other thing about it is that it was um it was rhythmic it wasn't extremely challenging in terms of, you know, it's not like I was, oh, I feel anxious. Let's put on Bloodborne and see if I can, you know, <laughs> it was very, you know, it was sort of like a, a pleasant gameplay loop. And also had the relationship building mechanic that I, I loved and continue to love in games. Yeah. Um, Rhythmic is such a good word to describe it because you've got the day night cycle. Yeah. And you've got also the... And maybe this is a bit true of actual farming, but the th you know you've got your chores each day that you, yeah, that you right. have to do, and there's a, there's something elemental and calming about that, isn't it? I know what I have to do today. I'm going to work through those, and then it will be a new day tomorrow. And yeah. that can just, like you say, just it, it's almost like a stimming, a psychological stimming thing, I suppose, isn't it? That can yeah. start to calm you. Absolutely, and then it would just have like at exactly the right time some sort of change that would feel really exciting mm. even if it was so mundane like her heart went up from a a green to a yellow or <laughs> oh this cutscene in the in the vineyard i wasn't expecting or you know i remember once i played because i played through it so many times when i was a kid um and i played once and i just planted a bunch of flowers just for fun and i woke up one morning on my farm and there was a couple that i'd never seen before that just showed up at the farm and looked at the flowers and went the woman was like, oh, honey, isn't it so beautiful? And then they kiss and then they leave. And that's the entire little section. Uh -huh. But again, it's it, Harvest Moon 64 is so interesting in that it really didn't, you know, there was no indication, no character ever went like, oh, well, you might want to try planting flowers on your farm. You never know who could show up. There's nothing like that. It was just <laughs> yes. like, I just decided to plant a bunch of flowers and then was rewarded with this like small, silly little 
uh, scene between these two characters that like never show up again. Oh, that's so lovely. And we, we've, you're right. We've sort of lost some of that mystery in games, haven't we? Games yeah. of that era, like you say, like today there would be a mission marker. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, like pointing you to the patch, like right. get your C's, put them there. And, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, I think that's why I failed so hard the first time I played it is because it really doesn't, it doesn't teach you basically anything. But then of course, after I, after I, uh, was chastised by my father. I like went online and I found all these like Harvest Moon resources and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to get every recipe. I'm going to get every, you know. <laughs> so now like every time you, you feel nauseous, you just have to play the Harvest Moon 64 theme tune and so um, yeah, exactly. can't, can't you down. <laughs> calm me down. Yeah, exactly. I think I did have a, a stint where I was feeling anxious, I think in college and I started listening to the soundtrack again. Oh, you did. And it was really Oh yeah, that stuff works, doesn't it? <laughs> You know, you, you've seen, you've played Metal Gear Solid, you've had this realisation that voice actors exist in the world. And um, mm-hmm. wh- at what point does that start to sort of focus into you actively stepping towards doing that kind of work? I didn't have much of a plan apart from, I guess I'll try to go to college in, in LA because I know that's where voice acting happens. Right, right. And really without Hey Ash, I don't know how I would have gotten into it. It really was such a um, a boon for us in so many ways having that web series because, at, in particular, at the time that it came out, there weren't there wasn't a ton of video game sketch comedy. Certainly, Jon Snow, you don't know things. It's you know nothing, Jon Snow. And if anything, I should be saying that to you. Well, I know plenty of things. Letters, triangles, Monday, the Civil War. You don't know anything about the Civil War. That's the one with America. Wow, I'm surprised you. And. Oh, went too far. And so we got noticed by developers that we loved in a way that was really sort of mind blowing at the time. But did did you start this when you got to LA? So you moved to LA first and then start the series? No, we we started we started when I was still when we were both still in high school. Actually, really, I think. Oh wow. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Anthony was working at Destructoid. Um as their features editor, I believe. And he just had this notion that he wanted to, he wanted to learn how to use a camera so he could make a documentary about indie game developers. This was pre indie game, the movie. And, um, so he got a camera and to practice was like, do you want to do sketches together? I said, yeah, totally. And so we just started doing them and then they kind of gained steam. And then Anthony got hired to write Borderlands two and we, and he never made the documentary, but he's fine, obviously. But yeah, so that, you know, Hey Ash, and then getting cast as Tiny Tina in Borderlands, those two things combined, I think, really helped launch a voice acting career that, I, yeah, like I said, I don't know how else I would have broken in. In the UK, all around the world, in the US as well, Everyone knows the idea that if you want to be an actor, you move to Los Angeles. What was it actually like to do that? Did you feel that you derived? Was it as difficult and exciting as as everyone says? It was really difficult for me. I, as I said, I was a I was a pretty sheltered kid, so it was a really big. You know, we never even moved. I, I think when I was a baby, we were in an apartment, and then by the time I could actually retain memories, I was in the house that I lived in until I moved out to LA when I was 18. So, and I think I, I think I'd only gone on a plane for the first time when I was like 17 or 18. So I was really pretty sheltered. A big move then. Yeah, it was a really big move. So I'm really happy I did it in the context of school 
because then I had, you know, structure. I had things that I, you know, classes I was going to and sort of a safer landing pad than just like, okay, I guess I'm going to get an apartment in Hollywood. And, you know, I I think if I had done it that way, I probably would not have, I don't know if I would have been able to stick it out because it's hard, um, that move. And I, college was also really hard. I learned that I had no idea how to write an essay and I got my first, (laughs) my first C, which the child of an immigrant Asian mother is like tantamount to, you know, doing hard drugs or something. I was like, oh God, I failed. (laughs) So it was really difficult. And I remember, I remember having a moment of like, maybe I can't do this. Maybe I should go back home. And I don't know what it was. I just sort of stuck it out. Oh, you know what it was? I think actually is that I joined the school newspaper (laughs) Uh and um, that gave me some like purpose beyond just trying to survive my classes. And I had like a community built into it. And I think that's what sort of helped me stay afloat. And then I think I got Tiny Tina while I was in college. Right. So so your brother had, had moved to work on as a scriptwriter on Borderlands 2. And then Tiny Tina is one of the characters in that game. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yes, exactly. So um, I got cast in that role when I think I was 18. So I think I just started doing, I think I was just starting to go to college. So yeah, with with with, the, with that kind of under my belt. Um, and then Valve reached out to me to help with their Team Fortress 2 short that I ended up playing Miss Pauling in. With those sort of things under my belt, it was a lot easier. So all the transitioning of like, this is a new city and navigating that I could do in the context of going to school, which I think just made it a little bit easier. And you're, you know, you're still at school and you're getting quite high profile video game jobs, aren't you? I mean, it's a really good position to be in at 18, 19, I guess. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I'm really lucky that uh, whenever people ask me how to break into the industry, I always feel a little bit at a loss because I'm like, we did it in such a weird way. But I kind of think that is sort of it, there is no standardized way to do it. So right. I sort mm. of, oh, I always sort of say like, well, what worked best for us was making our own stuff for a variety of reasons. Cause then you're also cultivating your craft without waiting for someone to give you an opportunity. But yeah, it's, it's just why I really don't, I don't really want to see that timeline of me moving to LA, having nothing going on. I, I, I have a lot of admiration for people to do it that way. Cause it's so hard. Let's uh, let's have a little break and chat about the third game that's going on your console. Can you tell us about this? Yes, the third game going on my console is Final Fantasy IX. My favorite of the Final Fantasies. Um... I loved all the... My first Final Fantasy that I ever played was Final Fantasy VII, which I did love. Um, And I also loved VIII. I loved that it was like in a school setting. I really wanted to go to Balam Garden very badly. That's another soundtrack that like when I think of the Balam Garden music, I feel very calm. (laughs) But Final Fantasy IX, I just loved... I just loved everything about... I loved the setting. I really loved the characters more than I think any of the other Final Fantasy games. Like I thought... um, Steiner was a fun character, such a fun character, and Vivi, and I, lo- I really loved Freya. I really, I don't know, I connected a lot with Freya, and Freya's the one with the big tongue. Is that right? Hanging out? No, that's Queena. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Freya is no, I don't apologize. It's totally fine. <laughs> Freya's kind of like, um, how to describe her? She's almost like a dog standing on her on her hind legs a little bit, like a, has like a wolf thing about her. But <laughs> she's kind of like there was like this sort of sadness about her that was very compelling. I just felt like those characters in that game were very um. 
flawed and endearing ways. I didn't love Zidane. I called him Zidane. Other people say Zidane. But I've never been like over the moon for any of the main protagonists of Final Fantasy games. The leads are always, they always They're always a little bit, yeah, they're always a little bit crap. But um, It's funny looking back at those three PlayStation Final Fantasies because they were the, my, the first ones I played in that series and then I went back and played the earlier ones. But um, like they're all so different, aren't they, now? You realise Seven was sort of, you know, them trying to break some new ground and then this other team goes off and makes the high school drama with Final Fantasy VIII and then... Sakaguchi, the guy that invented the series, is like, let's go back to our roots with nine. And so you're right. He's, but, you you know, when you're younger and playing that sort of thing, you just you just accept it for what it is. But now actually, like, looking at them, they're all so diverse from each other, aren't they? That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I suppose nine is sort of a retor- return to form, which I hadn't really thought about before. It's like knights and castles and all of that stuff, isn't it, again? Yeah, because it's, for me, like, seven is the baseline because that was the first one I played. But it is interesting to hear you say, like, yeah, of course, that was like sort of a. I can see why it was it's so beloved, especially because it's you know it's very like kind of cyberpunky, steampunky vibe, very different from which I think if I had my tastes now, I love sci-fi and I like some fantasy stuff, but I'm not as like drawn to it. So I think now, if you know, I was playing them all for the first time again now, maybe seven would be my favorite. But there was something about nine that I think I also really loved. It was like a world that I wanted to be in. I think that seven was sort of a bit dystopian yeah. and a bit bleak. And nine had this sort of warmth to yeah, it. it did, yeah. All the settings were, yeah, very like cozy and storybook. And I think I also, I liked Vivi a lot. I thought he was such a relatable character, sort of this like sort of insecure, fumbling, um, but secretly powerful <laughs> creature. You related. I related. <laughs> and the music, I think, in that one is like, str- I mean, I like the music of all the Final Fantasies, but I think about the Final Fantasy nine music more yeah. than any of the other yeah, ones. Yeah, it's I got think. such a lovely feel. I really love the opening of that game or, or one of those early scenes where you're in the city and there's like, everyone's really excited because there's going to be a big festival like concert that evening. And oh, yeah. That, they just really communicated that sense of excitement of, you know, going to an event that I had never really experienced. Yeah. Probably in my life in the, in the same way, but definitely not in a video game in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what's sort of cool about it too is that like at, at every point in a Final Fantasy game, you get sort of the, the mini game where you have to, like in Final Fantasy VII, the mini game of dressing Cloud up like a woman or the mini, like you're, you have to like sort of pretend at some point to do something that's like a little bit lower stakes and a little bit like goofy. And Final Fantasy IX kind of front loaded that since you're like doing the fake fight in front of everyone and you're trying to like get the favor of the king. I don't know. It just was so. Yeah, such a great way of doing it. I just yeah. loved it. I just loved everything. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. About it. So t- tell me what it was like doing some of these in early ro- vo- voice acting roles. You know, you are really, really young to be doing quite high profile work like that. Did you feel... Did you feel self-conscious or did you feel like, yeah, I'm in the right place where I should be at the right time? What was what was your emotional state? I was definitely nervous. Um, it helped that Anthony, I was basically, it really obviously helped that um, it, it sort of just felt like an extension of doing Hey Ash episodes with Anthony. Uh-huh. Like when he was writing Tiny Tina, he sort of realized like, oh, I'm basically just making this character Ash from Hey Ash, which you play in sort That's of a, like, yeah. so it was very natural. Like we had been doing that for a number of years and I knew it would make Anthony laugh. And so that was basically my only goal was like, just do stuff that Anthony thinks is funny. Uh, um, and he was actually the person directing me more or less. So I felt nervous about the fact that I was like in a vocal booth and there was like an engineer there and the person running the studio. And that was all a bit scary. So like, oh, this is professional. Like it's not just me and Anthony in our house. This is kind of, you know, but then getting into the actual doing of it was very much, it would just felt just like doing a Hey Ash episode. The response was, I feel like I'm in a constant state of denial. I think just because video games to me, even though they're huge now, are still niche. Um. Like I think about when I was a kid and how it kind of felt like you found a unicorn if you found another person that played video games. And now it's just, it's as common as anything else, but I think I still have that concept in my brain of like not that many people have played this <laughs> not that many people have played horizon when of course millions of people have played horizon but i can't i can't my brain can't compute that yeah right yeah it's just to me it's like oh yeah there's like this small sub subsection of the population that likes video games all us dorks over here maybe play uh, this game uh, but like not that many people and the, your performance in that game was very uh, it was a standout i would say it was a really good way to arrive on the scene wasn't it with a big brash character that um you know was very memorable it's the tina show starring me tiny tina lady's got a gut full of dynamite and a booty like how got a very important tea party coming up and my date is missing and i am not going stag don't even suggest it <laughs> For another baby! i'm gonna get that tattooed across my back in old english font yeah, I and and so close to my comfort zone, you know, and so and, and you know, I couldn't have asked for more of a comfort zone. It was, you know, my brother was writing it, and Anthony is such a good writer, and also had been writing for me for years. Yeah, I think it was. I couldn't have asked for a better way to to start because exactly as you say, it's like it was playing to the strengths that we had developed over a series of years working together, and then also was such a weird character in games in general. Like there really weren't. I mean, there are so few comedy games to begin with. But then when you think of comedy games, for the most part, it's, you know, all adult characters and um, there wasn't a there was not a character like Tiny Tina before Tiny Tina existed. Was it off the back of that performance that uh, that you were able to get an agent? So did you already have one by that point? Yeah. So I actually I had sort of a weird circuitous uh, route back to voice acting. Um, so I, w- I voiced Tiny Tina and then Eric Wolpa and Jay Pinkerton over at Valve got in touch with me because they were working on the Steam Fortress short. I sort of gave them notes on Miss Pauling and then I ended up voicing Miss Pauling and then a little bit of time went by and they, they or they wanted to make their goal was to make like an animated series like a Team Fortress 2 animated series and that original short expiration date was kind of like a proof of concept for it. So they were really excited about this and they're like we want to put a writer's room together we want you to be in the writer's room. And I was like oh my god. So I, I said of course I packed up my stuff I moved to Seattle I got there and they're like it's been canceled. Oh man. <laughs> So um, I hung around there for 
I don't know, half a year or something, kind of like helping with the comics and, you know, like writing item descriptions and working on shorts that didn't get made and, you know, various things like that. And then um, it kind of became clear to everyone, this isn't, you know, I should go back to L.A. This is not there's nothing there wasn't really anything there substantially for me to do. And I, I think I was still a contractor. I wasn't like hired on as like a proper employee. So so at that time that I knew I was leaving this man named Brendan Hoeing, who is now uh, a writer on a show that I voice the main character of. So it's a weird full circle thing. But he was an executive in Nickelodeon and he was visiting Valve because he loves video games. And so um, Eric and Jay were showing him around and they came back into like the our little writer's room area. And Brandon was talking about his experience at Nick and Eric, who I absolutely adore for many reasons, but for this also is that he was like, oh, you should uh, put her in your cartoons. She's a voice actor. <laughs> Brandon was like, oh, totally. I can get you a general meeting with our like casting person. And I was like, oh, my God. So if Eric hadn't done that. So it was worth going to Seattle after all. Yeah, I went all the way to Seattle to become a voice actor in L.A. But Brandon, true to his word, reached out to the casting director at the time, Gene Vasileros, and asked if he would if he would meet with me. And so Gene sent me some materials and had me kind of it was like three different characters. And he had me kind of perform those in front of him and do different takes. And he thought I was good enough that he started recommending me to agencies. And so I met with a right. you know, number of agencies and then ended up only one agent actually wanted to sign me, uh, Dean Panero, my current agent. And, um, and then he just started sending me uh-huh. auditions and that's kind of how it all went from there. But it was this, that's how, you know, why I say it's so hard to tell anyone like, yeah, this is how you get into it. Cause for me, it was make a web series, go to Seattle, work <laughs> on nothing basically for four months. Have one of your coworkers tell a guy from Nickelodeon that he should put you in his cartoons and then, yeah. <laughs> you know, he tells their casting director to meet with you. It's so often like you have to, being in the right place, like at the wrong time over and over and over again until that one time when it's being in the right place at the right time, isn't it? Yeah, and then, absolutely. You know, you've just got to keep showing up even though it's it, it doesn't work time and time again. Yeah. But I, I don't know if it always works like that, but it does sometimes, doesn't it? So, and, and you're also, you know, as well as doing voice acting, you're... You're doing your writing, right? You start writing mm-hmm. on Adventure Time, which is I love so much that show. And um, it's, and, isn't it great? Yeah. It's such a good show. And and also doing um, screen acting as as well. I mean, you, you're super busy. <laughs> Can you, how are you juggling all that stuff? Well, wow. I mean, right now actually, I'm um, I'm working on a I'm co-show running a spinoff of Mythic Quest called Mere Mortals. Yeah. Um, assuming we can get that name cleared, it's called Mere Mortals. Um, and that is absolutely all-consuming so I can't really do anything else actually right now except for uh as we were talking about before I'm I'm making sure to make time for Horizon and other projects that you know I've already started on just squeeze in Sony's major blockbuster well I oh my god it's crazy I mean like we think thankfully we did a bunch of the record even before the holidays, like we did a, a week of mocap and we did a bunch of recording before this job started. But yeah, last week I woke I woke up at um, 5.30 to start a voice record at six in the morning, which never happens uh, so we could get this stuff done. So really, I'm wow. <laughs> I'm not doing anything else besides this show. And is your first film acting job, the one in 2010, the Must Come Down? Yes. Yeah. Can you just tell me about that? Yeah. So um Again, a job I got through Hey Ash, What You Playing? But um, Kenny Riches, who directed and wrote Must Come Down, was looking for the female lead for his movie. And his friends who are now my friends, uh, Paul Chamberlain and Patrick Fugit, who Patrick, you, pro- you, you know, people might know from various 
film roles or from being in The Last of Us 2, actually. He plays Owen. Um, they liked Hayash. They were both gamers and they knew Hayash. And I think it, it has either Patrick or Paul was like, what about this girl? And so Kenny just he, he, I think he just messaged me on Facebook and was like, would you be interested in doing this? And he name dropped Patrick, which is the only reason I think I was like, is this person trying to murder me? Um, but I recognized Patrick's name and I was like, oh, yeah, that's the guy from Almost Famous, huh? And so, I mean, I can't, I sort of can't believe I did this now, but I flew out to Salt Lake City to meet all of them and um, and became friends with all of them and ended up doing the movie. But yeah, yeah that was sort of, again, another thing that came from Hey Ash. And also the wacky thing of um, Patrick got cast as Owen and I had auditioned in Last of Us 2 and I had, I had auditioned for Abby and Dina and didn't end up getting cast as either of those. But, you know, yeah. they had seen me twice or more at that point and I think it was Patrick that was like what about Ashley from Elle and Neil had seen me and liked you know Life, Life is Strange and I think Horizon had come out by that point he was yeah okay uh, so then Patrick and I worked together again but yeah, it's, it's funny how life stuff happens and it's on the the movie Must Come Down that you you meet the your co-star um, who then goes on to become your partner uh, David Setzer is that correct? yeah yeah yeah, his name is David Fetzer, and he's a. Um, all of those guys that worked on Must Come Down were um, like lifelong friends. I think David and Patrick had known each other since they were kids. They went to the same like theater camps and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, David and I um, started dating after it was very, a very classic <laughs> Hollywood thing, I guess, where you like fall in love with your co star. Were you in a relationship in the film as well? We Yeah, the, the story is sort of like. Each of us are going through like a midlife crisis. My character had just gone through a breakup. His character is trying to break into his childhood home um, and just sort of be in it and remember what it felt like to be a kid kind of thing. And we keep meeting on the same bus stop, basically. And so it's it's like a light romance. It's not like right. heavily, heavily, you know, we both have our two stories that are going on, but it is about like our relationship developing. Let's uh, let's take a break and go to your, your fourth game, which is from 2008. Spelunky. Oh, Spelunky. Spelunky was my very first roguelike. Um, and I had never really... I had a lot of like, I think I mentioned before too, I sort of always assumed I would be bad at games or like I would get very intimidated by games that had more complicated mechanics or um, had like high skill levels. So I really had to like, when I when we started doing Hey Ash, I really like forced myself to go back and play games that I was intimidated by, like Bioshock or I think the first game that I got that was quite challenging that I got really, really into was uh, Left 4 Dead 2 in terms of the versus mode could be really, really hard. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, a lot of rage quitting uh, involved in my friend circle when we played that game. And uh, Spelunky, I think, was the first time that I had really locked into something that was like, this game is punishing. Like the the, the more the, the sort of high level uh, idea behind this game is that it's very, very difficult. This is a game about exploring a network of caves as they, you play as a cute little miner. Dude. Yeah, and uh, you uh, the caves are randomly generated, and you have four hearts, and there's four levels of the of the first like generic run, 
the non-hell run. There's like a harder level. There's a harder run that you can do in the game. But to just beat the game on its sort of like normal mode, you have four hearts, four levels of four maps each. And if you die, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. There was just something about it. And I think also it's because our entire friend circle was also playing it at the same time. And so it was a very communal experience for me, which is, I think, also part of the reason why I loved it so much was that we would take turns doing runs. And it was like a, it was like a spectator sport. So like when you weren't on the run, you were watching someone yeah. like, oh, like reacting as if you were watching like a sports game or something of like, oh, God, they've got one heart left. I remember one holiday I was determined to beat hell. So there's another even harder version of Spelunky where it's so hard because you have to do so many things to get to it like you have to you have to find a key and open a chest and get this wajadai so you can find a secret door in the jungle level and get this uh, onk and then you have to die in the temple area so that you can resurrect and get this thing that opens this door and all of this is extremely extremely hard to do (laughs) and then you have to beat the final boss after that so we had a uh, run once there was just some Christmas that I was like, I'm going to beat hell. This is this is the week. And so every single day, Anthony and I would wake up and, and I'd be like, OK, here I go. And I would start and then I would I wouldn't make it and then we'd take a break and we would do other stuff. And then there was just one day where it was like, it, I think it was just me and Anthony that I was getting so close and so close. And then I won and it was like, ah, like I'm just screaming like it was so it was like one of my it's like probably still my like greatest like gamer achievement that I did that again it was just this like really deep communal thing and you know when I went back home to LA I was play I would still play it with friends and we would still like trade off doing runs and see how far we could get and we had our own little terminologies of like oh if you open this if you if you whip open a box and you get like a bomb box that's this is a milk run like like if you got like 10 bombs right at the gate my friends would be like it's a milk run milk run you can't you can't die like you got everything in your corner if you die like you just suck like (laughs) so it's funny because it's a single player game but it ended up being like really communal for us yeah those moments when you have that communal sort of moment of triumph with your friends and you get to feel what it's like to be a sports person after all (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) it's the closest i've gotten um so I I read a, this amazing piece that you wrote. It was a few years ago now you wrote um, for the independent magazine, A Profound Waste of Time, where you, you talked about your audition that you did for Life is Strange, um, you know, wonderful narrative-led uh, game, episodic game series. Um, would you mind just sharing some of that story? But It relates back to, to David, who you were talking about earlier, but um, maybe just could you just tell us about what it was like doing that initial read-through? Yeah, so um, spoilers for Life is Strange, which I suppose it's been a minute, so most people have probably played it, but if you're thinking about playing it, um, this is a very big spoiler, so be forewarned. So David, my partner, he he died unexpectedly from an overdose in 2012. He had an addiction to Percocet that I had no idea. I had I didn't know anything about addiction um, at that time. It's funny because my dad is um, is sober, but he never really talked to us about his his alcoholism, except to say that he was an alcoholic and he had stopped drinking and that we needed to be careful with our drinking was all he sort of told us. But apart from that, I didn't really know anything about it. And I had never seen him not sober. So being with David was the first time that I had really come like full force and contact with oh this is what addiction looks like and it took me a long time to even be able to understand that that's what it was and this was because he had back pain is that right yeah so he um had two herniated discs um in his spine and 
had no health insurance. So I think was basically just, I think was just sort of managing pain instead of, there was like discussion of surgery at one point, but it's also, I think at the time, sort of like, we don't know if this will actually be a concrete fix. And so it was this situation where he was also doing a lot of obfuscating. So he would say that it hurt, but would not really talk about the degree to which it hurts and would sort of just take these pills to manage it. And it it took me a long time to realize that he had a problem with them. And then once I discovered that and we talked to his family about it, um, we sort of, you know, this fixation was sort of on like, well, let's figure out how to help his back pain. Um, and so we were in sort of the process of trying to figure that out when um, when he overdosed. He was extremely young. He was 30. He just turned 30. And um, it was just, I mean, it was the worst. Yeah, unimaginable. It was the most devastating thing that's happened, ever happened to me. Um, and... Yeah, just, and I was extremely young. I was 22 or something, 21 or 22. And we had been living together in Seattle. And, you know, so it was during the holidays. holidays. Of course, the holidays are very weird for me now. Um, Because he was back at home in Salt Lake City and that's where it happened. So fast forward to, I don't even remember when I recorded Life is Strange, but um, I got cast as Chloe. And over the course of Life is Strange, you're kind of trying to uncover a few mysteries. There's these girls that are going missing. And one of them is uh, this woman, this girl named Rachel, that Chloe is very obviously was very close to. I fully interpreted, and I think most people did, that she was, and and maybe it is canon as well, that she was in love with Rachel and that Rachel had kind of disappeared. And, you know, she didn't know what happened. And I think it's, I can't remember what episode, episode four, maybe episode three or episode four. I came in to record and my director, Phil Bach, was said, you know, this is kind of an intense day of recording. So go ahead and read ahead in the script a little bit and see, just sort of see where we're headed. Was it, was he aware of what had happened in your life? I don't think so. Um, but no, I think he just knew like, oh, this is an emotional scene. So the actors should know that there's an emotional scene coming. And for those that may not know, many times when you're voice acting, you don't see the script beforehand. You walk in and they're kind of like, okay, what are we doing today? Which is why he was giving me a heads up. I flipped ahead and I saw that there's a scene where they're in a junkyard and they discover Rachel's body. Chloe discovers Rachel's body. Um, and she's been dead for, you know, quite some time and buried in this junkyard. And yeah, I started getting emotional pretty immediately. And it was not something that... It's funny, I just read a book about grief recently by Joan Didion called My Year of Magical Thinking. Yeah, amazing book. Yeah, really amazing book. And something that resonated so much with me in that book is because I'd always felt it and never really talked about it is that there's like this Western idea of grief where you're like aspiring to not show it. Like the, the less you show it, the better you're doing, the better at being a person you are, uh-huh. the, the faster that you act like you're okay. Uh-huh. And that was very much my mindset as well is like, I can't show this to people. I can't, I can't let people see that this grief is ripping me apart. And um, and I think also the circumstances in which he died also made it challenging to talk about because now I know many sober people, but I was at an age where like no one around me was equipped to handle what had happened of to me. Of course. <laughs> like me least of all, but it was so, ta- I mean, still it's very taboo. So I was doing a lot of sort of shoving my grief in a box and trying not to look at it. This might sound like a, a trite question, so forgive me if it is, but did you feel that um, 
the the words that you were reading out that the character is expressing sort of their own grief were the words that you had been unable to say or something like that and it was allowing you to put shape to some of those feelings that you'd you'd tried to ignore that's not a trite question at all um yeah, I think, I mean, I don't remember exactly what I say in the scene, but I think it is, as you would expect, a lot of just, like, disbelief and, uh-huh. like, no, not, yeah, I think, yeah, I do, actually, yes. I think she says something like, not not her, please not her, things like that, and yeah, I just remember that, be, you know, I kind of, after the first go-through, was sort of shaking because of how sort of visceral it was, and I hadn't revisited those feelings, and I did have this sense of like, as I was leaving that session that day, that that was something that, you know, and grief is not, it wasn't like, oh, I opened the box and all the stuff came out and then I was good. It's not, you know, I'm still dealing with it now 10 years later um, in, in ways that I wasn't capable of dealing with it in my early 20s. It was, I could tell that it was emotion that needed space to move. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of unplugged something at the start of that process. Yeah. Um. Should we take a break and talk about your fifth and final game? Can you tell us about it? Yes. Uh, my fifth and final game is one of my favorite games of all time, Mass Effect 2. This game is so important to me for so many reasons. I love sci-fi, as I said earlier, and I love a good crunchy sci-fi. Like I love uh, multiple alien species with different cultures that have different issues with each other that, you know, (laughs) and the aliens really look like aliens and that alone I loved. It was some of the best writing I'd ever seen in a game. I'd already loved uh, Rex from Mass Effect 1, but Morden and Thane and Garrus, all those characters just spoke to me so much. I couldn't believe how I, I, I have such deep affection for Morden. I've, I don't think I've ever loved a game character as much as him because I just thought he was such a complex, strange, morally gray, but not like anti-hero. He's so dorky and strange, and you know, he has that moment where he he bursts into song if you talk to him enough and. I just, I was like, I did not know that games could write characters like this. He's kind of like a very skinny alien, um, with fairly uptight in some ways. Is that right? Am I thinking of the right guy? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, yes, he is a, a Solarian, if you're familiar with the franchise. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and he talks very quick, and he's always kind of, he's sort of in this register, uh. and uh, he's sort of clipped. He's like, he's trying to be very efficient. And... But he's also like kind of brutal, like he'll just kill, he'll, you know, the first time you meet him, you just like kill someone because he knows they'll get in his way. And it's like sort of the more efficient thing to do. But apart from that, the thing that I loved so much about Mass Effect 2 is specifically Jennifer Hale's performance as Commander Shepard. So good. Yeah. Um, She's so good. And I had never 
The last care, uh, I'm sure there were games before that where you could play as a female character, like Fable 2, I think is a game that you can pick your gender. But I think she was the first character that I had played that was fully voiced and was so like, this is such a bizarre thing to say, <laughs> but in the Shadow Broker DLC uh, for Mass Effect 2, you're, you're trying to find this person called the Shadow Broker, this alien called the Shadow Broker. And it's basically like a buddy cop action comedy of with you and your uh, another character in the game called Liara. Mm -hmm. yep. There's this moment. And again, they, you know, they use most the same motion capture for both gendered shepherds. So there's not like <laughs> fe you know, femme ship walks real sexy and male ship walks like a normal person. They look they have the same, you know, animation style. And so there's this moment where you meet the shadow broker and he's this huge alien. He's like very intimidating, very big. And my shepherd just ran up, jumped, and clocked him in the face. And I got kind of teary-eyed. Because <laughs> it was like, we can do this. Women can be like this powerful. And, and, um, and Jen, Jennifer Hale just imbued her with such, just, there's such depth to her performance. And especially now playing an open world character protagonist myself, it's a difficult thing to do because you have to honor every single person's viewpoint of the character. You know, if you're if, if you're in a, a choice wheel and you're you're the player wants to be nice and then they want to be mean and they want to be nice and they want to be mean and they want to be mean and they want to be nice. Like you have to make all of that make sense and feel consistent. Uh, like you're like the person's playing a congruent character, even if they're an asshole 80 percent of the time and nice 20 percent of the time. Like your performance has to support those choices. And she did such a great job. And the other thing I'll say about Mass Effect 2, the other reason I love it so much is it was the first time that I had felt that the narrative and the characters that they had built affected the gameplay decisions that I had made I made at the end. So at the end of Mass Effect 2, spoilers for Mass Effect 2 um. if you haven't played it, the last mission is is, is literally called the suicide mission. There are like choke points where you have to send characters to do different things and you can't be there to protect them. So there's like, we need, you know, we need an engineer kind of character to go through these um, tunnels and hack these things. Or, you know, I need a B squad and I need someone to like lead the B squad. I needed a B squad leader. And the choices were between Miranda, who I did not like or trust that much, and Garrus, who I really liked, but had gotten his entire squad killed. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> In the events between Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2. Have you have you romanced any of these characters, by the way, by this point in your own story? Yeah, so Thane is the Thane was my guy. I was I was okay. big on I, yeah. I romanced Liara in the first one. And then Thane in the second one. If anyone has in listening hasn't played the game, I know this made absolutely quite no lost. sense. I uh, I had sex with a frogman. That's what I did. <laughs> but a very a very sexy frogman. I had this moment where I was like, okay, I have to choose between Miranda and Garrus. Like, what am I gonna do? And I like put the controller down, and I was like, I think Garrus can do this, but he has such guilt hanging on his shoulders from losing his squad. And then I was like, and that's why he'll never let it happen again. And I put him as B squad leader and everyone made it out alive. I just had this moment of like, I had integrated the narrative that they had made, that they had written into my understanding of these characters that I loved so much. And then when push came to shove, I like called back on our conversations and I was like, no, my man's going to get the job done. I know he's learned from his mistakes. And <laughs> And that just stuck with me as like such a special thing that I had grown so attached to these characters that I knew their backstories intimately that when I needed to make a choice like that, I like reflected back on their story and our story together and was like, no, this is I'm giving him an arc. I'm giving him his arc and he's going to he's going to pull through for me. And he did. Amazing. 
Um, Ash, thank you so much for, for your time and for talking to me and sharing with us your, your choices. Oh, my God. Um, thank you for having me. It was so fun. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. So we need to we need to market your uh, your console to the world. Um, do, you, do you have a name for it? Um, I had a friend who used to um, call me Smashbox. <laughs> oh. So I think maybe I'd, I'd name okay. it the Smashbox. Okay, the, Smashbox. The Smashbox uh, 480. <laughs> 420, 420. No, wait, what is it? 360? Is it 360 and then 420? Do you mean like as in like rotations for on a skateboard? Yeah, as in rotations, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, okay. 720, do you mean? Uh, Yeah, maybe 720. Either Smash... Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll do... Let's do Smashbox 720. It's so clunky. It's so awkward and clunky. I love it. Smashbox 720. Um. Okay, and just before I let you go, is um, is there, is there like a, a game or game series that you would love to lend your voice to at some point oh man mass effect i mean i've said it i keep saying it in interviews hoping that someone at bioware will be like yeah we'll make her like an asari on the citadel or something i i, I want to be a mass effect so bad i love it so much this is why you've been so nice about jennifer hale because you're you're gunning for her job <laughs> oh my god if she would i would ne- if she reprised her role it would be ne- there would be no greater thing to me as a gamer i would never i would just want to be yeah. i would desperately want to be one of her new companions that's what i would want okay and just give us a little taster of what that character will sound like. Well, I guess, are there any female Solarians? Oh, there is now. There is now. Okay. I would be Morden's daughter that you didn't know about. <laughs> yes. Mordana. <laughs> so you can do the, like the clipped thing, you mean? So I can kind of do this and I can kind of speak like this. Oh my gosh. So good. <laughs> um, Ash, thank you so much. And thank you as well for... Um, sharing with us you know not only your choices but also some of those um harder memories as well i really appreciate yeah that. And, of course um, i'm sure the listeners will as well it was so. lovely talking to you simon as always well wasn't that just wonderful you can see ashley birch right now starring in Mythic Quest, which she also writes uh, on Apple TV. As you heard there, she also is working as showrunner on a spin-off for that show. And she also stars in Horizon Forbidden West, the PlayStation 5 game that came out uh, late last year and is currently working on a new chapter for that game as well. You can go back and see some of Ash's earlier work on YouTube the full Hey Ash, What You're Playing series in which she stars with her brother Anthony uh, is available to watch and holds up very well. And of course, if you have played the Borderlands 2 game and its spin-offs, her character Tiny Tina is unforgettable. I first met Ash before all of that, before she starred in Borderlands, uh, when she was still making Hey Ash, What You're Playing, and um, she'd been invited to contribute some skits to the Game Developer Conference uh, award show, and uh, we became friends at that point. And it's been really wonderful to watch her blazing career trajectory in the years since, and uh, to cheer her on in all that she is doing and has achieved. Thank you for listening this far into the podcast. Uh, I hope that you have enjoyed it and found it worthwhile. You can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com with any feedback or comments or things that you'd like me to share with other listeners. 
uh, and thank you to those of you who have already been doing so. You can follow me at Simon Parkin on Twitter and you can also follow the podcast at My Perfect Console with the O's removed. You'll find it. I will be back next week with another amazing guest. Five games, one perfect console. Until then, have a wonderful week. Goodbye. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.